Good morning, good morning, good morning. <laughs> All right. Uh, the reading for today is from 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Nick. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. Happy New Year. Uh, packed service this morning. We have one other person we want to... Uh, uh, bring up and talk a little bit about this morning. So if Hannah Nightsky could please come up with me. How many of you know Hannah? Yeah. See, you're known and loved around here. That's right. Um, so uh, we don't always do this, but uh, Hannah was part of our volunteer staff when we first moved into this uh, property uh, more than three years ago. She was doing all of our social media uh, for us. And uh, I've been at Redemption Arcadia for uh, eight years now, and I honestly, I don't know how long you've been here, but I can't remember a time when you weren't here. And so you've been a, a, a deep part of our community for a long time. You've served on our staff in a volunteer uh, way. You are one of the all-time great greeters in the history of Redemption Arcadia, standing out there greeting, so volunteering, helping Stephanie so much. Stephanie leans on you so much. Uh, and we're here to say goodbye to you today, um, unfortunately. Uh, for us, we prayed against this job, we did everything we could, um, but the demons of Amazon proved too strong uh, this time. Uh, Hannah is moving to Seattle to go to work for uh, Amazon. Uh, it's a great opportunity for her in all, in all um, reality, and, and we're really glad for you, really proud of you. We're going to miss you terribly, but we wanted to send you off and also just remind you that there's a terrific church in Seattle called Icon that is led by a guy named Justin Anderson, and so we'd hope that you would maybe uh, make a connect. Justin's one of our founding pastors, in case you were wondering about that, and so um, maybe you could move up there and, and bless uh, Justin and in his community the way you've blessed us, okay? So um, those of you who didn't know that Hannah's moving, you might want to say goodbye to her uh, today. She'll be hanging around. You will be hanging around for a couple of minutes anyway after service. I just told her she will. Yeah, she will now. So, so let me pray for her right now before we get into this sermon. Uh, Lord God, again, uh, the way you bless us here at Arcadia and our community with people uh, is amazing. The way you empower and encourage and equip uh, your saints, and Hannah is a great example of that. And so we pray for Hannah now. We lift her up to you. We pray that you'd be a blessing and you'd continue to guide her as uh, she moves to Seattle, uh, that Amazon would understand what a great blessing she is, and that um, the city of Seattle would be uh, different because Hannah is there and bringing the light of your gospel there as well. So God, we pray for her. We pray your blessings, your protection and your provision on Hannah as she goes. We thank you for her service to us, uh, her community and relationships with us over these years. Again, we pray that you'd bless her, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, man. Thank All right. So I mentioned this last week to the three or four of you who were here. Um, 
You know, that last Sunday of the year is always low attendance Sunday, and we understand that. It, it's crazy. But um, this is something that Tom Schrader did every single year for like 25 years in a row. He not only did it at East Valley Bible Church and then Redemption Gilbert, but he also did it in his, uh, week, uh, his weekday uh, priority living study. Um, he called it past year, present year. Uh, it's kind of a year in review and then kind of looking forward to the next year. Uh, I did it last year. Uh, I decided to go ahead and do it this year. doesn't mean I will do it every single year, but there, again, like I mentioned, there's a lot of new people at Redemption Arcadia because we're growing. Uh, and also, again, it's just a terrific outline. It's Tom's outline, so it's probably going to be pretty good. Um, and, uh, but I'll fill the outline with my content. It would probably be really weird if I just used Tom's content as well, so I'll use my content. So here we go. We're going to dive right in. Um, I want you to get in your mind an answer to these four questions. Look at, um, look at 2019 through this grid. So how was 2019 on a scale of 1 to 10 uh, looking at it through this grid? Number one, did you make more money? And that question is, did you make more money, not did you keep more money? You understand that a lot of people who make more money than they did the previous year don't necessarily keep it. And as a matter of fact, uh, there can be a very dangerous trend of people who make more money in a particular year than acquiring more debt in the same year because they feel like that's probably just going to keep happening. And maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. But that can become uh, a fairly serious and, and treacherous uh, way to run your finances. But just the, qu the overall question, did you make more money? Because a lot of people measure their years through that specific grid. Here's another one. Did you improve your position or enhance your career? Did you get a promotion? Uh, did you get a new job at Amazon and have to move to Seattle? What, I mean, did, what, did anything like that happen to you this year? Uh, that would be possibly a good thing as well. Here, here's another question. Did you increase your influence over others? This, this question is actually about power. Do, do you now seem to feel like you have more power than you have had in the past? Maybe more status than you've had in the past? And then the last question were you able to cause envy or jealousy in others? Are you the reason for somebody else's discontent? Have you ever thought about it that way? Now, we may not say that out loud, but you understand that there are times when we think that that may, may be a measurement of success. So, uh, Tom used to say, this is kind of the world's way that, that you might evaluate how your last year was. So, in your mind... Uh, scale of 1 to 10, get a, get a number, okay? 1 being the worst possible number. You never want to see the numbers 2019 arranged in that sequence ever again in your life. And 10 being, I hope I can have another year just like 2019. Uh, now, obviously, we're going to present a different way possibly to evaluate your year, which I'll get to. Uh, but here would be uh, essentially my answers. Uh, I made about 2% more money than I did last year. Um, I'm, I'm still doing what I've been doing for the last 20 years. One enhancement to what I've been doing in the last 20 years came eight years ago when I came to Redemption Church. So that was an enhancement eight years ago. Um, the church has grown, uh, and, and we have a bigger staff, and so I guess that would be a yes uh, to one of those questions. Um, but on the last question, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure that each year fewer and fewer people are jealous or envious of me. And, and when I started driving a nine-year-old Volvo, I knew I, lo I lost a lot of juice then. So, really? That's okay. So, anyway, so I guess you could say, using that criteria, I had an average year, maybe a five or a six. 
Now, what we would propose is a better criteria. Number one, did you recognize the importance of self-evaluation? And I'll probably spend more time on this than anything else uh, in this message this morning. And this message has a lot of moving parts, but I'll probably spend more time here than uh, in any other area. Uh, In 1955, a couple of scholars named Joe and Harrington invented something called or created something called the Johari window. I don't know if anybody's heard of this, uh, but here's what it looks like. This is a this is a, an enhanced vision of what it looks like. They, they didn't have all the colors back then. They just did it in black and white. I wrote it down. But uh, here's what they said. It, it's a way of evaluating yourself. It's a way of having a, a level of self-awareness. Uh, and for the, you scholars out there, this is a dramatist view of life, okay? So uh, what they proposed is that each of us has four different selves. There's an open self which is sort of our front stage self. It's the self that everybody knows about us. We're willing to let everybody know about it. Uh, and, and we know this about ourselves as well. So everybody knows about this about ourselves. That's our open self. Um, then there's the hidden self. The hidden self is the self that uh, ostensibly only we know this about ourselves. It's what we keep hidden from everybody else. It's what we do when we're in private. It's who we are when we're in private. It's like me when I go home and I just want to put on my fat pants and my 12-year-old t-shirt. That's it. And I don't want anybody, including Jackie, to see it. So she's still at work and that's when I'm in my fat pants and stuff. But Obviously, it's deeper and deeper stuff than just that. I'm just giving you an example. So your, your hidden self is what you know about yourself, but essentially nobody else knows about yourself. Uh, the blind self is just the opposite. All of us have a blind spot. This is the, uh, a blind self. This is the most difficult self. All of us have a self that everybody else seems to know about, but we're oblivious to. And this is the self that can harm ourselves and others the most because we are oblivious to it. And it can be the most difficult to have to reckon with because you're going to have people and you should have certain people who eventually will speak into you about this blind self. Now, there are always going to be people who want to speak into your blind self that don't have a relationship with you and have a strategy and agenda other than pure and genuine love for you to speak into this. Those are the people that shouldn't be speaking into your blind self. But you and I should be cultivating people in our lives who can speak into our blind self, who are going to do it with no agenda or strategy other than they just want what's best for you. And it shouldn't be a bunch of people, but it should be a few. And you need to develop really strong uh, and trusted and graceful and forgiveness-based relationships in order to be able to do that. I have two or three or four people in my life that can do that, including my wife, who happens to be very good at it. And I know that she, and, and obviously she knows a lot about my blind spots, but um, she does it because I know she genuinely loves and cares for me and wants me to improve. Then there's the unknown self. We could talk for an hour about that. It's an interesting self. It's the self that, you, that, is, that does exist. It's latent. You don't know about it. Nobody else knows about it. You may die with it. It may eventually come out later, but it's, it's the self that nobody knows about at this particular moment. So it's that blind self that we have to concern ourselves with. Uh, It's this idea that all of us have blind spots, a blind self. All of us need more self-awareness about those areas in order for us to improve and to do better. And it can be very painful. It can be very difficult, but it is extraordinarily necessary. 
Uh, there's a great story that many of you know in the Old Testament. Uh, it starts in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, and it starts by saying this, uh, during the months in the spring, in the springtime, when all the kings would lead their nations into war, Israel had gone to war, only their king, King David, was not with them. The, the, the exception here for King David, for whatever reason, he was lollygagging, he didn't feel it, whatever, he just delegated his, his army to go into war, and so they went, but he stayed back in the palace. And he got himself into a bit of trouble. Some of you know the story. So uh, one night while his nation's out at war and he's supposed to be leading them, but he's in the palace, he goes out onto the patio in his palace, which is elevated above the rest of the uh, homes in, in, in Jerusalem. And he looks out and he sees a vision on, on the roof of one of the homes below him. There is this woman named Bathsheba and she is bathing on the roof of her house. She's completely naked. And let me tell you, Bathsheba is H-O-T hot, okay? And, and David sees her in his leisure time, okay? And so he tells his guys, go and get her for me. And they bring her and they have sex. They make love together and then he sends her away. The next thing we find out is that Bathsheba is now pregnant, and the problem with Bathsheba is she's married. She's married to a guy named Uriah, who is a pretty important part of David's army, and he's out at the time fighting. So he's away fighting. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Now the king has a tremendous scandal on his hands, right? So he plots, and he figures it out, and he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. So he sends for Uriah at the front, brings Uriah back. Uriah comes to the king, and he says, uh, give me a report on the war effort, Uriah. Tell me how, how it's going. And Uriah recites and says, well, this is going on, and everything, and all that. And then David says, thank you for the report. Now, why don't you, before you return to the front, why don't you uh, go this evening to your home and, and, and hang out with your wife and, you know, kind of let nature take its course. And what does Uriah say to David? How can I go home and lie with my wife when my comrades are out fighting for this nation, fighting for you, fighting for God, fighting for Israel? I would never do something like that. Instead, oh king, I'm going to sleep in your doorway tonight. And David says, oh snap, this is not what I was hoping for. So he has to come up with a new plan. So his new plan is he writes a secret sealed note to the commander up at the front, and he hands it to Uriah the next morning. He says, now go back to the front and, and hand this to the commander. And so Uriah, ironically, hands this note to the commander, and the commander opens it, and, and the note says, uh, everybody push forward to where the fighting is most treacherous, and then everyone except Uriah withdraw. And that's exactly what they did. And the reason for that was because Uriah would be immediately killed, which he was. And so the scandal has been averted. Now Bathsheba's a widow and she's free to marry David. But Nathan is having none of it. Nathan is having none of it. Let me read to you the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. It's painful, isn't it? You are the man. By the way, in Hebrew, it's very simply this. Haishata. You the man. Haishata. Now, around work, you should walk around now and just going Haishata to people. You the man. It's kind of a cool little way of greeting people, of congratulating them. But Nathan says to him, you are that man. You are the one that we are speaking of in this little parable here. And it's painful. Uh, you don't have to raise your hands. Any of you ever had a conversation like that with anybody? that suddenly opened your eyes to your blind self. David needed this conversation. And Nathan loved him enough to go and give it to him. And Nathan had a relationship with David, the type of relationship that would allow him to go to him. So it's not that this just happened out of the blue, but he had developed these relationships where then Nathan felt like he could go and say to him, you are the man. I've had conversations like that. They're painful. They're awful. I get that burning sensation up the back of my neck when this happens to me. But I will also tell you that these conversations have been some of the greatest gifts of my life because it's opened my eyes to something that I desperately need to see. And God wants us to be able to have those relationships and those conversations. So did you recognize the importance of self-evaluation? Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 6. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, not others, so that they can find fulfillment in their own walk without comparing themselves to anyone else. Those are good words. Here's number two. In 2019, did you understand the value of your time? Uh, We often make two mistakes with time. Number one, uh, we don't value it enough. Uh, Time is actually more valuable than money. Just ask anyone on their deathbed. And it's just as valuable, sometimes more valuable, than information or social capital. Uh, But we don't value it that way. We don't value it enough. We don't recognize what a great resource it is. But also, the problem with time, secondly, is that we don't realize how often time is actually our friend and not our foe. It's amazing how often we think that we need to move fast when in reality, slowing down would actually be better for us and we have way more time than we think or we realize. Haste brings us to to poverty, but steady plotting brings prosperity. That's Proverbs chapter 21. And in Psalm 90, we, we quote Psalm 90, all of us do, all the time about this time thing. What we don't remember or realize about the context of Psalm 90 is that Psalm 90 is a lament psalm about our sin and the trouble that we find in this world. So in the midst of a lament, a grieving, mourning, lament psalm about our sin and the trouble we find in the world, the author prays to God that God would teach us to number our days correctly so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, one way to navigate properly and well this broken world that we we live in is to value 
and respect what time we've been given on this earth so that we can use it wisely. It makes sense to pray and to seek God's wisdom when it comes to spending our time because we should be asking ourselves this question about time. Are we going to spend our time or are we going to invest it? Now, I'll be the first to tell you, there are times when we should just spend our time. We should. But we also need to recognize the importance of also investing our time. When are we going to invest it? And that brings up something else that we often forget about time. Time is the only resource in which we are allotted the exact same amount as everybody else in the world. We all have 168 hours in a week, and so how are we going to spend it or invest it? The competition with time is never, how can I get more time than others, but rather, how will I use my time more wisely than others? Paul writes this in his last letter just prior to his execution, 2 Timothy 4, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. Paul understands the constraints of time and how important it is. Uh, Number three, did your victories exceed your defeats? I've said this for a long time and I continue to say it and I continue to believe it and I want Redemption Church to be a church that celebrates its victories more than its defeats, but I think Christians can tend to be some of the worst at recognizing and celebrating their victories. It's like we can't seem to just enjoy what God has given us. We're always worried about the next thing that's going to happen. And I fall into that trap myself as well. And I think part of the reason that we tend to lack gratitude, um, uh, uh, part of the reason that we don't celebrate our victories is that we tend to lack gratitude for so much of what we do have. Uh, Again, here's Paul in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. Paul is so bold as to celebrate and be grateful for the end of his life, even at the end of his life when he has no time left. He's celebrating his victories even when he knows it's all all over with. Uh, and, And this little verse here constantly makes me ask this question and wonder, how am I going to be on my deathbed? As a pastor, I've been around a lot of deathbeds. And I will tell you that there's, there's a variety of experiences with people who are on their deathbeds. And there are people who are very bitter on their deathbeds, and there are people who are at peace on their deathbeds. And I want to be somebody who, like Paul, is at peace. And, and that, that, that comes from gratitude and joy from being able to celebrate our victories. So did we celebrate our victories? Uh, number four, did you finish well? Most of you know I'm a runner And I continue to run. I've been running for almost 50 years now. And I love it, even though I'm really not very good at it anymore. You know, you got to know, age is kind of cruel. It really, especially physically, it's cruel. So I I still run. I'm not very good at it. But but even though, no matter what, when I do run a race, I always run the race with the finish in mind. I mean, anybody can start a race. Anybody can start a race. The question is, are you prepared to finish Uh, the race. Who is going to be there at the finish line? Especially if you need the bus to take you back to the starting line. That's very important that you get to the finish line. Again, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He can look back on his life and say those things declaratively. We have this conversation a lot. We see so many, so many people just tap out on their faith. Just, just one day, they're, they're not around anymore. They don't even have a conversation with anybody about it. They're just gone. And if they're gone to another church, 
That's one thing. And we can celebrate that. But if they're gone and they're not going to any church and they've walked away from the faith, that is troubling and that's hard. And there's a lot that do that. There's a lot that do that. Why? Why do they tap out on their faith? What I found in the last five or six years, two reasons why people tend to tap out on their faith. Number one, unrealistic expectations of the gospel. People have genuinely unrealistic expectations of the gospel. This idea that I know Jesus now, my life should be easy and and, and problem-free. That's an unrealistic expectation of the gospel. The gospel is very clear. The Bible is very clear. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This is one of the things I love about God's Word is is that it's not sugarcoating anything. It's letting us know the reality of how hard life is going to be, but the guarantee and the promise and the hope that Jesus is always with us in the midst of that. That's the key to it. So one is, is unrealistic expectations of the gospel. Here's the second one. Many of these people have an unquenchable desire to conform to popular culture and try to figure out how to get their faith to conform to the culture. You need to understand, the gospel is counter-cultural. You can't get it to conform. And what happens often is these people try to reinterpret biblical doctrine so that it fits with the culture rather than reinterpreting their lives so that it fits with the gospel. And when they realize that they can't do that, they can't reinterpret uh, biblical doctrine to fit with the culture, then they finally just give up and tap out. That's it. They'd rather be popular They'd rather be accepted by the culture than to stand with Christ. And that's why people tap out. So finish the race. And number five, did you anticipate the return of Christ? Now, I'll tell you what, as a church, uh, I think we did this really well in the last half of 2019. Uh, Going through Exodus and then Advent, (laughs) we talked a lot about the return of Christ in both of those series. Paul says it this way. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So here's Paul on his death, metaphorically on his deathbed, they executed him, but knowing he's going to die, and here's what he's saying, I have something to look forward to. And not only that, but I look forward to it for everybody else who knows Christ. It's not just about him, it's about everybody else who knows uh, Christ. And then, of course, this is Jesus in Revelation chapter 22. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So now, using that grid of those five things, and we could talk about those for a lot longer, but just using that grid, now what does your 2019 look like? Maybe you started at a two, and now you're an eight. Maybe you started at an eight, now you're a two. Maybe it's been, uh, maybe it's the same. I I kind of had a mixed bag there as well. And as your pastor, I will just confess to you that I need to do better. Um, I, I did really well with the question of time in 2019. I seem to be getting, uh, getting this idea of time more and more and more, and I'm really glad for that. I think just that's kind of the, one of those things with age comes wisdom about certain things like that. And, and number five, I, I feel like uh, 
I anticipate and talk about the return of Christ probably more than anybody in our culture except end times cult leaders. And I'm just right, I'm kind of pushing up right to the edge of that right there, you know. Uh, but question number one, like most people, I am really good at teaching other people about self-evaluation, and I think I'm pretty aware. Uh, I'm pretty self-aware. I'm aware of the, some of the problems and issues I have. But this is an important distinction. Having self-awareness about your issues and doing something about it are two completely different things. Now, it's true. This is important. It's true. To be able to do something about a problem, you have to first know about the problem. That's the first step. That's half the battle. But if you just have the information and you don't do anything about it, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm really good at that first half. I need to get better at that second half. I'd like to get better at taking what I know to be true about myself and using that information to actually improve. And number three, I admit, I, I will just tell you, I, 2019, I, for, in many respects, I don't ever want to see those numbers, those four numbers in that order again. I just don't. I, I had a rough year. I had some victories, but I had many, many defeats, but the overwhelming loss was Tom. Nothing could have mitigated that loss. And I admit it's been a cloud over me for the whole year because he died right about this time last year. And partly because of that, number four, I know I didn't finish very well because of that cloud. And honestly, please, understand, I'm not saying any of this to evoke pity. That's not what this is about. I, what I'm trying to do is trying to help you to be honest with your own evaluations using these grids. That's all I'm trying to do. But honestly, I limped into Christmas. I was, I was overwhelmingly fatigued and exhausted going into Christmas. And I just need to do better there. And, and, and maybe you do too. I don't know. I will tell, tell you though, I, I, how many, I don't know how many of you were at Christmas Eve services. I was so thankful for... Uh, the, uh, Malia and Caleb and the rest of the team, the way they pulled off Christmas Eve with all the transition we've been through, um, that was a great relief to me, as a matter of fact, and I'm thankful for that. But I'll tell you, I need to do better there. So, last thing for this morning, it's a way now of looking forward also at, at 2020 to maybe set some goals. So here we go, five things. Number one, let's work to improve relationships. You've heard the one another's of Scripture. Love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, serve one another, rebuke one another, correct one another. All of the one another's. You just read through Scripture and you see how important gospel-centered relationships are. And is there ever a time when any of us could say, honestly, all of my relationships are perfect? Certainly not. And that was the passage that Nick read this morning. This is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that, that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. Was Timothy Paul's biological child? No, but he calls him that. He calls him that. He, he, they did not have a DNA connection, but they had a spiritual connection. The way Larry Wright had with Tom Schrader, those of you that know Tom, the way he used to talk about uh, Larry, you know. In fact, um, Larry used to call Tom my Timothy. <laughs> See that? Grace, mercy, and peace 
from God the Father of Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So working on our relationships. Number two, desire and increase in freedom. Honestly, whatever it is that you're serving or even worshiping that isn't Christ, you're in bondage to that thing. Now, it's not that the things of this world are necessarily bad, but if you place them in importance and priority over Christ and you make them false gods, that's when you're in bondage to these things. We need to break those chains and come to Jesus because that's where true freedom is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Brothers and sisters, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with him at your side. By the way, that's the messages. That's Eugene Peterson's interpretation. One of the greatest freedoms in the world is to simply bloom where you are planted rather than always looking to be somewhere else with someone else doing something else. Those are the greatest um, pieces of discontent that you and I have in our lives. We're constantly looking somewhere else to do something else and to be with someone else. And God is saying, I'm with you right where you are. Bloom where you're planted. I've blessed you where you are. Now I might call you somewhere else, but don't get ahead of me. Bloom where you are planted. Number three, consider your passion and zeal. I'm always a little bit nervous about this one because I believe far too many people in our world today believe that passion and zeal is all you need to legitimize any pursuit you've undertaken. If you're passionate about it, it must be legitimate. That's the way a lot of the world looks at this. So here's a key question that we all need to ask ourselves. Is that which you are passionate about legitimate? Is it legitimate? You may have passion for it, but is it legitimate? Well, I don't know. I just know that I have tremendous zeal for it. Well, I know people who are passionate and zealous about gambling. That's not a good... I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, recreational gambling. I'm talking about people who are gambling their mortgage payments. And I deal with that. And that happens. That is not a good thing to be passionate about. But I'm really good at it. Are you really? Because if we're keeping score here, I don't know that you are. Okay? So that's not a good thing. I, here you go. I also know people who were passionate and had great zeal for the show Lost. That's just not a good thing. It is not a good thing. And those of you who watched it to the end saw that it was not a good thing, okay? <laughs> Tom used to talk with great frustration about people who would say, yeah, I, but I, I sincerely believe this or that. I sincerely believe it, as if that settles it. Sincerely, that settles the truth of something. And he, always, he would always ask these people, um, he would say, well, have you ever considered the possibility that you're sincerely, what? Wrong, you know? And he found that when the person stuck around to answer the question, if they weren't too offended by that, um, that they would answer something like this. And this is totally our culture speaking here. This is just somebody, you know, channeling the culture. They would say, no, of course not. How can I be wrong about something for which I have so much passion and sincerity for? That's the, generally the answer. And that's usually the drop the mic answer. That's supposed to be the end of the conversation. That person needs some self-evaluation. That's a blind self-issue there. 
Look at what Paul says. This was his passion in Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know what he's talking about there? He's saying, I would rather go to hell and not know Christ if it meant all the other Jews would come to their senses and know who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the suffering servant that they've been waiting for, that he's the, the, the truly the one. I would be willing to give up my salvation for them to have salvation. That's the kind of passion we're looking for because it's a worthy, worthwhile, legitimate passion. Number four, expand your perspective. Paul writes in Philippians chapter one, and it is my prayer that your love, oh good, we're going to talk about love, love. I love to talk about love because love is so cool. I pray that your love may abound more and more with what? Feelings and compassion. No, he says, I want your love to abound with knowledge and all discernment. Well, that sounds kind of boring. Paul says this is what genuine love is. Genuine love does not put on rose-colored glasses. It takes them off. He says, I want your love to abound with knowledge. And by the way, that word knowledge is literally hyper-knowledge, like super-knowledge. Okay? And all discernment, so that, there's a purpose in this, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. See, see, Paul's understanding of biblical love has a purpose that we would get closer to Christ and be able to approve and know what is excellent and what is pure and what is right and what leads to righteousness. That's what genuine love is. And, and, and love in that perspective expands our perspective. Understanding love that way will expand our perspective. That's the true definition of love. And the problem, one of the problems is our, our world's definition of love is all jacked up. Paul's understanding of love, the biblical understanding, expands our perspective in all areas of life. It is a gospel-centered love that goes everywhere. And then number five, a commitment to a strengthening of the Spirit. Uh, our primary goal in Big R this year, this is Big R, big Red- all nine congregations that Tyler uh, Johnson is leading us in. Our number one goal this year is that we would pray more. Pray more. And that is one of the best ways to strengthen our spirits, is to pray more. And I hope that's our goal as well. It's the best way to strengthen the spirit. Consider how often Paul prays in his letters. He just stops and prays. In his, he starts many of his letters with a prayer. He stops in the middle of many of his letters and prays. He's praying all the time, even when he's writing. Consider how often Jesus prayed in the Gospels. So those five things. Um, just consider for 2020. Uh, we talked about this last, last year as well. Uh, consider finding three relationships that you'd like to cultivate further. Not necessarily starting three new ones, but maybe ones that you already have that you want to cultivate, that you want to nurture, that you want to grow. I had the opportunity to be able to do that this year with a couple of guys, and it was really fruitful. It was really fun. It was really cool. Uh, Consider two constraints to remove. Whatever those constraints might be, it might be debt. It might be buried shame, as Lacey said. Man, 
That, that hit a chord with me. This idea of buried shame, that, that's a constraint. Uh, consider one passion to feed. Um, I'm still just really, really interested in prison ministry and, and uh, prison transition ministry. That would be probably mine that I want to feed the most. And then five books to read. That's an easy one for me. Uh, you know, I love to read books. Some of them uh, even I'll listen to. Uh, and that leads into this last thing. I, I, do this, I do this only because so many of you ask about it and are interested in it. Um, and so I do it because I, I guess it helps some of you. But um, here are my top five books uh, that I read in 2019. My opinion, you can argue with me all you want. My top five books. And by the way, I couldn't limit it to five. It's eight. So here's my top five books, all right? Uh, by far, and by the way, I've seen other uh, people's lists. Uh, this was number one on probably more lists than any other book that I saw. Uh, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. Has anybody read that book? Anybody? It, it's absolutely fantastic. It, it, it helps you with your worldview, uh, understanding what's going on in our world today more than any book I've, ever, I've read in a long time. It was the best book I've read probably in the last five years even, I would say. Um, and then pretty close to it, but in a completely different genre, uh, is this book called uh, Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. Anybody heard of that or read that, Destiny of the Republic? Anybody? No? Uh, it's about the assassination of James Garfield. Uh, the pres- he was president in 1880. Only a couple of us were alive then. Um, <laughs> oh my God, it's, fant- it's just fantastic. Really good, really good. Um, the Coddling of the American Mind, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Anybody read that? Anybody? What is wrong with you people? <laughs> I, okay, thank you, Greg. Good book, right? Excellent book, yeah. Uh, really helpful uh, to read that. Some of you right now are going, are we just paying this guy to read books? Is that how we're doing? (laughs) Anyway, uh, number four, Hillbilly Elegy. Anybody read that? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, see, hands went up on that one. Yeah, really helpful. Again, very interesting, very good. Uh, Number five, by the way, these aren't even necessarily in order other than that first one. iGen by Gene Twenge. If you've got kids, uh, you need to read iGen. Put that at the top of your list if you've got kids. You need to read iGen, then read Nancy Piercy's uh, book. Uh, and then the last three, When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson. Uh, kind of a flippant title, I know. Very serious book. Really important to understand uh, what's going on again in our culture today. Uh, this book... Uh, uh, my youngest daughter, our youngest daughter Darby gave me this book. It was absolutely amazing. It's called The Fire Line. Some of you saw the movie. It's about the, um, the, the Granite Mountain hotshots, the Yarnell hotshots who all died in that fire a number of years ago. Um, written by a New York Times uh, journalist. Uh, it, I could not put it down. It was absolutely fantastic. And it's really a story of faith. Most of these guys were Christians who died um, up there. And then the last one, uh, I didn't read this, I listened to it, um, but uh, it's the fifth time that I've been through this book. First time I read this book, I was 16 years old, and I couldn't put it down, same thing. Uh, This book is absolutely unbelievable. It is absolutely fantastic. We have uh, this, it's uh, Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi. Um, We have superheroes and superhero movies and all that stuff. Let me tell you something, Vincent Bugliosi is a true superhero. 
You need to read this book. I know, it's 780 pages in paperback and about four-point font. You know those MP3 discs that you can listen to on a book? There's four of them for this book. That's how long this book is, okay? It's worth reading or listening to. It's about the Manson murders. And the reason I got interested in it again is because we went to see the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it reminded me of this, and, and believe it, it's just it's really, really good. So, um, not very theological, but a little bit, <laughs> um, but really good writing. So that's it. Let me pray, and, and we'll uh, start our time of reflection. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And God, we do thank you for Tom and uh, his outline today uh, to be able to read and study. Uh, God, I just pray that... Um, I just pray that we would have a great year in 2020, that we would use these as a guide, these, uh, these reference points, that we would strengthen our spirit and expand our perspective and understand what true love is and be good at self-evaluation and do something about it. All these things that we've talked about. God, make us a church that prays even more. And God, help us to be the church that constantly steadfastly proclaims your gospel and teaches your word. That's our prayer for 2020. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.